Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of The Muse. I am your host, Marfine Chan. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sticking with me through this podcast project. Uh, for those of you that have been listening um, from the very beginning, uh, thank you for your feedback. Thank you for your comments. They are very much appreciated. They are what makes this podcast better. Uh, and for, for your uh, you first-time listeners, make sure to subscribe, listen, uh, and rate and review the show on your uh, podcast streamer, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. Uh, I am working on sort of getting it on other platforms, but uh, there are a ton of them. So uh, again, um, welcome. Glad to have you on board. Uh, in this episode, the, the 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 primary focus is my interview with Mary Davis, who is the Housing and Community Development Division Director. Um, and we talk about housing policy in Portland, Maine, sort of the 30,000 foot view. Um, what are the challenges? What are some of the solutions being offered and, and, and some of the trends that we are seeing both here in, in, in Portland and across the nation? But uh, before I get to that, we'll get to the segment, um, the muse. I will just say that uh, we only have one news item uh, today it's on the Isaac Muse and Mark Cardilli Jr. case. Um, I'm joined by my friend uh, Nick Schroeder, who is the Portland reporter for the Bangor Daily News. And uh, this this case is the only news, uh, muse, shall I say, item today because, uh, as you will soon find out, me and Nick Schroeder got into some of the details of this case and some of the complexities around it. Um, and so give it a listen. Hello. Hey, Nick, uh, this is Marfine. Hey, Marfine, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm sitting in my car across the street. It's, it's, uh, it's so treacherous outside. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... Um, gym, so. Yeah, I think the snow's supposed to, to last until about in the mornings at some point. Um, yeah, it's pretty nasty. How, how are, how are things at the, the Bangor daily news? Uh, when did you start there again? Oh, good. Thanks. Uh, uh, back in June, back in June. Okay. So, so not, uh, not too long ago. And, and no. I think that was when I was in the, the throes of, uh, political campaign in Portland. <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah. You were, you were in the campaign. I was, a uh, I had been with the Phoenix, uh, kind of for a second stint over the last two or three years, and then that ended in February. And then now there's the new Phoenix, which is different. Different folks they've relaunched it, but um, yeah, started with the BDN in June. So yeah, I I mean I'm I'm keeping tabs on on the Portland Phoenix and and sort of you know how they're gonna be different this time around. But Marianne yeah. Marianne. Mc- McHugh uh, is a veteran in this in this field, so I have no doubt it's going to be um, uh, going to be great. But uh, 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 I have you uh, on the podcast uh, today to talk about uh, the Cardilli case, which you've been covering for the BDN. Um, sure. Could you sort of tell us um, uh, w- w- the status of that case and where it is uh, at this point in time? Sure. So, uh, where I am now, uh, which is it's Tuesday evening, I mean, as far as I know, and, and I, I haven't checked in with them today, so I, I 
I hope that nothing, I hope I'm speaking out of turn, if anything did develop today. Um, I, uh, as far as I know, um, Justice Mills is, she has, uh, she's taking it under advisement. So after, at the end of, at the end of the trial on Friday, um, she's, she's taking time to reach her verdict. The defendant, um, Mark Cardinelli Jr. has waived his right to a trial, so it will be decided by um, by Judge or Justice Nancy Mills. And what I think is her her final decision before retirement, as far as I understand. Um, and that should be coming sometime this week. Although um, when I spoke with them yesterday, I spoke with the courts yesterday. I did not know when that would be coming. So, so, so she's retiring. Do you think that? that has an effect on how she would decide or is just she is sort of she a generally a judge who just sort of tries to make it along the lines of uh past practice yeah i i mean i don't know and, and i'm uh i'm not familiar with her i mean this is um you know, I was I was in the courtroom covering this all last week, but um, I'm still not a very not a veteran courts reporter uh, mm-hmm. at all. So I, I don't know her in particular or, or her past decisions. Um, but I, I just think the fact that it's the last um, the last trial of her of her uh, career, I guess, is um, although I'm not, I'm not sure they're sure she's going next. Uh, I, I mean, I, yeah, it's a, it's a very high magnitude. It's a very, uh, it seems like a very important case, and a lot of a lot of eyes are on it. So, um, my my guess is that, you know, without knowing which way she's going to go, I, I think I, I think that she really wants to take her time yeah. <laughs> and give it full, you know, full attention. Well, I mean, like like she said uh, in in uh, her 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 quotes in the paper, she's going to do basically what uh, a jury would do: is deliberate on it and and read the evidence. Sure. Um, sure. could you give for us, so, so I haven't been in the courtroom and, 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 uh, um, I'm, I'm guessing a vast majority of people weren't in the courtroom. What, what was the sort of the feelings like, uh, I know earlier last week, um, his sister testified and then he testified Friday. What was the, the general feeling throughout the week? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. It was, it was in, so so the, the trial led off with uh, Mark Cardilli Jr.'s sister, Chelsea, um, who is 18. Uh, and I, I think that that testimony was, um, was, uh, it just, it had, a, it was very impactful. You know, I, th- I think it was like really emotional. And, um, the, uh, her perspective in particular, I think is like, is really interesting to, to watch. I mean, I think she's, um, she, she led off with, um, a lot of statements about, I think there was a statement and I'm kind of paraphrasing at this point, but there was a statement where she said like, you know, he, he, everything changed with him once he went into the army. And I think he had, he'd been in the army for the last five years or so. So it really like set set the tone for the whole, the whole family relationship as like a, Mm -hmm. a pretty, like the whole family is something, you know, fairly, um, going, like going through a troubled time. Like I, yeah. I kind of illustrated for me, like the, the parents were, um, I, not going through a divorce, but I, I, they're not divorced, but I think they were going, they were separated in different parts of the house. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think around that time there was a neighbor who testified that, that the mother, Suzanne Cardilli said that they were 
think they're getting a divorce or something like that. So it just really, it just really uh, illustrated like that the family was, was, was maybe not communicating super well around that time. Oh yeah. Did, did, um, the, did in, the prosecutor oh, bring that up or, or dig into that? Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't in the courtroom for a hundred percent of the time. Um, I probably, I put it maybe 90, 95% of the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the prosecutor did ask, ask into that. I don't, it's not directly relevant to, to Mark Cardilli's actions as far as I, I could, true, I could yeah. imagine, but I, but it does kind of paint a, a picture of the communication style. Yeah. And I think much of the, much of the way the court proceedings have transpired was, was there's a lot of just procedural witnesses who are kind of, um, you know, who are just, uh, other evidence technicians or, or other expert witnesses kind of just, um, you know, walking through other, the, the house's surveillance systems and, mm-hmm. you know, the whereabouts of different bullet, bullet casings, a lot of stuff that, you know, is, can get, I don't want to say tedious, but there's just kind of a lot of formalities to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there would be rather more, um, more, uh, I guess, you know, impactful testimonies from from family members and i also will say that the the courtroom itself is really interesting because the community of um isahak news his uh his family and and what i could gather was maybe former classmates or friends of his or 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 folks from the somali community in general were um were made up the majority of the courtroom gallery um, every every day, there were there were many many um, folks from his community that were there. At nine nine or I'd say yeah, eight thirty to five, mm-hmm. eight, every single day. Um, so it, it, I think that as a backdrop too for for how the the trial uh, took place last week was really just this is something you couldn't really get a sense of in the straight reporting of it because I just think that that was the that was just the tone of it. Just set helps set the tone in the room. Is just yeah. hearing the family members um, give testimony and and that and those folks just watching every minute of it. So, um, like his family. So I, I've been I've been th- digging through the, the numerous articles since uh, March, since uh, the the uh, the incident happened, and and I was trying to get more of a sense of who who both the uh, both Isaac uh, and. Uh, and Mark were as, as, you know, either high schoolers or, you know, as people. And, um, I know Mark was in the army and, you know, he was in the, I think a program with the police department in high school. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, Isaac Muse, I didn't, didn't, couldn't find too much about him other than that he played basketball for during high school. Um, could you paint sort of for us, for us lay people, sort of a, uh, a picture of both people, uh, how the community saw them before this incident. Sure, you know, I, I couldn't. I honestly couldn't. I think that's um, that's a part that's that's kind of been missing from from this story and from the. Um, I I think there are there are ways. Yeah, I think it has been missing. Um, I. I, I was not reporting on this back in back in March. I, from my, my, I wasn't with my post, so I, I heard about it certainly, but I was I was out of town, honestly. Oh, yeah, but um, yeah. but uh, um, so I I don't I don't know a lot about Isaac um, from his time in uh, 
at Deering or before. I, I know that he was born in Portland um, and that his parents uh, are Somali immigrants. And um, and then I know he has a number of brothers and sisters. I spoke with uh, two women and one man. Um, I, I'm not sure what age, but uh, who identified themselves to me as his sisters and brother. Um, and then... Um, but I, I wish I, I wish I knew more. And I, I think that there is, there is a, a story to, to tell about who, who he was. Um, and as far as Mark Cardilli, um, he's a, he's a little older. I think he also, he did also go to Deering High School. He's, he's 25 now and Isaac, um, was 22, would have turned 23 last week. Um, and, uh, I don't, I don't know about that police program you mentioned, um, from high school. And, um, my understanding was just that he was, he was deployed at three different, um, three different, he was stationed at three different locations uh, as part of, um, his time in the army over, over five years. Were they overseas or, or in, in, I, I'm pretty sure there were three U S locations and, and one was Alaska. Okay. Um, so Alaska, New York, and I forget the, the other one, honestly. Um, but then, um, and then he came back, he was honorably discharged from the army and, and came back, I think officially in, uh, I don't have my notes in front of me. It's either December or March. And I know he came back in December. I can't remember if it was a holiday or, or something. And then he came back officially in March or something. Um, I, I want to say he came back in December. And Oh, so it was only... And, and, so if he, if he did come back in December, that was only months before the incident yeah, happened. Right. And, and what did come up in the, in the trial is that he, he met, um, Isahak, um, in December. And I, I think it, it was, it was kind of unclear, a few different conflicting reports about how, how much he knew about, um, Isahak Muse's relationship to Chelsea um, and I think that maybe comes from some of the um, maybe lack of communication in the family that, that people had talked about in the trial mm-hmm. last week. But um, the one thing that did come out was that when they met uh, for the first time, Mark Cardilli uh, said uh, something along the lines of, why aren't you dating somebody your own age or something like that? Um, and I, I think that was in the in the very first conversation. Yeah, and, and he was he was 22, Isaac he was, was 22. 22 and then yeah. Chelsea was 17 at the time that's yeah that yeah that's my understanding I'm not sure when Chelsea turned 18 but I yeah. believe she's 18 now um and so uh what I've been most irked about is sort of well I'll take that back because the the, the prosecution um by presenting Chelsea as the first witness and and Chelsea mentioning that Mark had made some racist and xenophobic comments about black people and Muslims. Um, that seemed to sort of set the tone um, um, from the get-go. And then um, Mark Cardilli's defense attorneys uh, repeatedly said, you know, this isn't about race. This is, there was no discrimination, which I, uh, obviously, you know, some of my work I took issue with. And, um, um and part of my reason for asking you uh, before we hopped on uh, the phone about their their height and weight was because of the the American Psychological Association studies about how um, you know black men 
are perceived as stronger and more muscular and, and, uh, um, sort of more, more aggressive, um, to their, their white counterparts. And so, um, um, what, so the height and weight of, of Isaac Muse was, I, can you remind me about, about that? Sure. So, um, what, what was, what was testified by the state's medical examiner, um, whose name I believe is Dr. Mark Flomenbaum. He he said that Isaacmus' um, weight or height and weight was five foot nine, one hundred thirty nine pounds um, during the autopsy, which was taken right after his yeah. death. Um, and, and just so everyone knows, five nine is my height. <laughs> sure. How, how tall are you, Nick? I think you're pretty tall, right? I'm yeah. I'm I'm six three. Six three, yeah. Because um, I, I think Mark Cardilli had said that he he thought Isaac was was uh six feet or something yeah 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 that's it is it's a really interesting thing to bring up and I, I think it's been interesting to see that um come up in court because um there have been you know obviously mark mark cardilli or maybe not obviously but um mark cardilli jr has um said i mean he he's he does not deny that he he shot his like news he, he's saying that it was in self-defense yeah so um he um, and it has come up that he did believe that Muse was, um, you know, he, he said that he believed Muse to be around, around six feet, 170, 135 pounds. He said during yeah. his testimony, um, 139 pounds though is way off the mark. Yeah. It's, that... it's pretty, it's, it's pretty, yeah. sl- I mean, I, 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 I have never, you know, I, I'm just, imagining but it seems pretty he was described as like a slender yeah or lanky i think the, prosec- the prosecuting uh state attorney said lanky um so yeah i mean that has come up and i think that is an interesting thing for, for you to to key on because it, it it has um it has been kind of like uh folded into his defense that he um yeah that that using um deadly force was necessary and 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 there was also another thing that came up too which which was on this same issue um you know and i i, I guess i just also want to preface here I'm, i i can't get into anybody's heads you know like yeah. i'm not interested in, in <laughs> saying any any I, I can't presume anybody's intention or anything like that but there was a a day where where they were trying to establish whether um whether Muse had had his hood up, is he apparently he had been wearing a um, a hooded sweatshirt and a jacket um, the night of the of the event, um, the night and then early morning of the event, and um, and there was some attempt by the defense to um, to uh, establish whether. Um, whether he had had his his hood up during the the fight, as and I I I couldn't make a lot of sense of that. Besides, you know, like I, that to me reads like they know how troublesome that argument sure. is, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I, mean, uh, I, 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 for, I forgot like, who was it, Tamir Rice, or uh, you know, some of the shootings that sparked yeah, the Black I mean, Lives uh, Matter. Trayvon, it bring, immediately brings up Trayvon. Oh yes, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so. You know, I, I, and the way that came up in in court was that it, it, you know, race did not come up whatsoever in that particular conversation. Yeah. There was just some sort of question around, 
did he have his hood up? And the way that I heard that was that as though having a hood up is kind of a, a presentation of um, intimidation or something like that. Yeah. And I don't, in my experience, I don't really, I don't really understand it to be that, you know, like if I were involved in a sort of um, hand to hand fight, like fight with somebody, I think having a hood up around my peripheral vision would only impair me, you yeah. know, like it wouldn't yeah. be something I would do to try to intimidate my opponent or, or, or whatever, you know? So I don't know. That was, that was just another thing that maybe tied to, that issue but yeah i mean you're right i mean the 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 racial dynamics around this are obviously yeah. um, front and center cuz i mean the the evidence is clear that the examiner has has um said that uh there were two shots to the back right yeah there were three three bullets fired and the medical examiner said that there were two bullets um that uh, entered his body and were um, the en- the entrance wounds were from the back. Yeah, and and for me, the other thing that I I was sort of you know, um, you know he he is army trained to use guns, I assume, and and for me it was just sort of uh, you know, I I thought uh, you know his his handling a gun would have been a little more uh, less. I don't know how you how you how you would put it, but off the cuff or or, um, I didn't expect at least how it was told was it happened pretty soon after he grabbed the guns, but um, but also his father was there, so I think one of the statements he made to the police was that he was afraid that, um, both him and his father were going to be overpowered by Muse. Yeah, I A five um, foot nine, one hundred thirty nine pound. Yeah, and a, another dimension to this is his, his father, Mark Cardelli Sr., did not testify, did not give testimony. Um, and Was he there? Um, I'm not sure if he was in the courtroom okay. ever. Um, but he, from my understanding, is, um, is that he has, since that incident, been diagnosed with um, ALS, and I, I, uh, I'm okay. pretty sure that's the case. Um and from what Mark Cardilli has said, he said that there was some, um, concern, you know, his father had been feeling unwell for a yeah. little while. Um, and I think, uh, and he, my understanding is that at the time of the shooting, he had not been diagnosed with ALS, but he was, you know, he had symptoms. Um, so he did say that there was, that did come up in Mark Cardilli Jr.'s testimony, that um, he was concerned about his father's about the safety of both him and his father yeah yeah that, that said i mean i i and i can't pretend to know exactly you know the, I, the whole week was spent trying to figure out the timing of yeah. the event relative to um or the precise timing i guess mm-hmm. um but uh a, a, you know a, a, an argument broke out sometime between 20 and 30 minutes beforehand um, and there was some, there was like pushing, um, in the kitchen. Um, and both Mark Cardilli's, uh, senior and junior were trying to remove or physically remove or escort in some way, um, used from the house. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a few different perspectives on how that went, but, um, by, by Mark Cardilli Jr.'s, um, 
state a, a testimony or account of the event like that was just kind of like that didn't escalate above pushing um and uh by the time that he he went to retrieve the weapon I th- was how he how he testified i think there's a you know there's a lot of different language that everybody kind of uses in there i think some people say pushing shoving you know mm-hmm. I, I just, and i know chelsea I mean, it was also testified that Chelsea Cardilli was in the room and kind of um, hitting or scratching at both the mother and the father. I mean, it's really hard to make sense of what happened exactly, but it seemed like it really was a fairly dynamic kind of family fight, plus plus Isaac in there. And then by the Um, time that... But nobody had weapons until Mark Cardilli went to get a weapon. And by the time that Mark had gotten the gun, his mother had gone outside of the house to try to call the police, right? Yeah, that's somewhat in dispute, too. Um, She did go outside the house, she she said. And I think um, she went to a neighbor's house, and there was a neighbor who testified um, that said the same. Yeah. Um, there was there has been some dispute about she she made an attempt to call nine one one. There was a test. Part of her testimony was that Muse either blocked her or like slapped the phone from her hand or or in some way impeded her uh, her attempt to call mm-hmm. the police. Um, and that contradicts uh, an interview that she gave police just hours after the event where yeah. I think she was, she was directly asked that. And she, she said that, no, he, he tried to grab it, but it didn't. I, I said, no, I think she said something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. I mean, and, and the difficulty in this too, is that, you know, human memory is yeah, uh, <laughs> like there, there's been plenty of like um, sort of psychological studies about me- memory and, and how it sort of changes over time. <laughs> Um, and so Absolutely. that, that's a difficulty of this as, as well. Um, but, but, uh, Absolutely. And, and trauma, you know, I mean, and trauma is a, I have, I can't, I can't attest to how, I mean, it, the trauma for all members of that family about this event has to be, um, significant. Yeah, for sure. Um, but right now it's, it's in, uh, Superior Court, uh, Justice Mills, hands um and and as as far as we know there's no sort of timeline of when she has to release that as far as i know um or last friday uh, a verdict would be reached this week and i i know I, I don't know anything further beyond that same here yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll trust i'll trust uh, what, what you have to say about that and and uh, we'll we're both uh keep an eye out uh for that uh um verdict or, or judgment but um uh, thank you for joining us and thank you for giving us sort of uh the 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 deets on that um and uh glad to see you're at the banger daily news oh thanks Marfine. hopefully making more there too right <laughs> hopefully what hopefully making more there too right <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, you know the whole industry is making more yeah fun. yeah it's sad but uh um but uh, hopefully we can turn that around um but uh, again, thank you, and, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Great. Thanks, Rafin. All right. Have a good one. Goodbye. Bye-bye. And that's it for my interview with Nick Schroeder from the Bangor Daily News covering um, the Mark Cardilli Jr. trial here in the Cumberland County 
court, superior court. Uh, if you want more information, I'm posting links to Nick's uh, articles from the Bangor Daily News in the episode note. So please uh, check those out. Uh, before we move to my interview with Mary Davis, the Housing and Community Development Division Director for the City of Portland, uh, let's first take a break. As much as I know that you love that music composed by yours truly, these music breaks could be an opportunity for you or your business or organization to advertise and to sponsor uh, this podcast at the same time. So if you are interested in, in doing that, please contact me on the contact form on my website or go on my Patreon page and contribute there. Um, again, uh, you know, as much as you love this music, I'm sure that uh, there are other things that could be filling the space. So, uh, back to the show. Hi, and welcome back. We are at the segment where I am uh, sitting down here with uh, Mary Davis. She is the Housing and Community Development Division Director for the City of Portland, and we are here at her offices on the third floor at City Hall to talk about the 2019 housing report. But before we jump into that, Mary, could you give us sort of a brief overview of, of what you're, you you do in your role here and what your staff do in the Housing and Community Development Division? Sure. Um, I started working for the city of Portland in 1998, so it's been uh, almost 22 years. Um, and uh, in the Housing Community Development Division, essentially what we do is manage um, several federal grants um, along with the local housing trust fund. Um, and um, those grants are the CDBG or Community Development Block Grant, the Home Program Grant, uh, the Emergency Solutions Grant or what we call ESG Grant. Um, we have a lead safe or Lead Safe Housing Grant, um, and then we have our local housing trust fund that we also administer. And so within, in doing that work, um, we also um, staff several committees, including the City Council's Housing Committee um, and the new Rental Housing Advisory Committee. Um, so we work on housing policy issues as well. Now, you mentioned the Portland Housing Trust Fund um, not everyone knows where exactly the funds for that come from. Could you give us a breakdown of, of the revenue sources for that? Many years ago, the initial source of that fund were um, fees paid as a result of the city's housing replacement ordinance. Um, and there were... Um, I could get you totals. I don't have them all off the top of my head. Um, but those fees were paid when housing units were taken off the market and not replaced. We don't see very much of that happening now. Um, so we looked for other ways that we could capitalize that housing trust fund. And right now, the primary way that that's happening, there's two primary ways. Um, 
the city's new inclusionary zoning policy um, allows developers to pay a fee in lieu of creating a unit in their development. Um, and that's become a big source of funding for the housing trust fund. Um, and then in addition to that, the city council has allocated other revenue from sale of city properties and different things that have um, helped to capitalize the fund. Um, so that's right now we probably have about a million dollars in that fund. And could you just tell us where the, the funds end up going, uh, what they fund or go towards? We're using it to uh, right now primarily to create affordable rental housing. Now, the Housing Trust Fund is one of Portland's sort of uh, tools in its arsenal to to help tackle the housing affordability problem. Um, but it's not just an issue that is in Portland, Maine. It's an issue, as the Portland Press-Herald has, has mentioned, all over the state of Maine. And it's an issue all over the country. Um, in terms of the national look at things, are, are there common challenges and common approaches to this issue? Um, so um, from our perspective here in Portland, I think we um, look at the language that we use to explain what the issue is. So affordability to us means not necessarily what your income level is, but how much are you paying for your housing? And so we use the, I think it's a standard industry rule of thumb that if you're paying more than 30% of your gross monthly income for housing, then your housing is not affordable for you. And that would be irregardless of what your income level is. Um, so then you start drilling down into um in the market, what are the costs of your housing and who is that housing affordable to? Um, so I think a lot of communities struggle with the same kind of thing. Um, so you have to look at, um, you know, do you have regulatory barriers that impede um, the creation of housing that's affordable at different income levels? Um, do you have policies um, within your community that um, stand in the way of creating the kind of housing that you want. Um, one of the things that we did in Portland in 2016 is um, we did a um, major public outreach um, and we, the city council's housing committee did this. Um, they pulled in a lot of industry experts, including people from the country, not just in, in Maine or in Portland. Um, and one of the people that came uh, to talk to this to the housing committee was um, Dr. Christopher Hebert from the Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University. Um, and he looked at what the city was doing. What is our ordinance? What are our ordinances, our zoning requirements? Um, what are the resources do we have that we use to influence um, housing? And um, he said that, you know, all of the best practices that he recommends to communities throughout the nation, Portland's doing in, in a certain fashions. Um, so we have inclusionary zoning, for instance. Um, we have um, made some changes in our zoning ordinance that promote density or height bonuses um, for creating 
certain types of housing. Um, so we're doing uh, the term that sort of came out of that 2016 housing committee process is uh, a toolbox. Portland has a toolbox of resources that we use and there's um, it, it varies. So we have financial resources, we have zoning resources, we have other policy initiatives that we do. Um, those are all part of our toolbox. Um, there's no one way, there's no one policy, there's no one source of solving the problem. And so we have to look at it from um, multiple different perspectives. Now, I mentioned the, the Portland Press Herald editorial, and I'm sure you, you've read it. Could you go into the complexities around housing for us and 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 how there are many moving parts and that it's, it's not simply a supply and demand issue? Sure. Um, so in order to build, you have to have funding to do that. Um, in the uh, so those federal grants that I mentioned um, when we first started speaking, uh, those help us um, to provide funding to create uh, housing that's affordable at certain income levels. And so I think Portland does a really good job with the, those resources that we have, creating housing that helps people at, um, say, 80 and 60% of area median income and below. Um, what we've seen is the market is doing a good job at creating housing that's affordable at higher income levels. Um, at levels that probably most people wouldn't say are quote affordable. Um, and what we are trying to um, look at is how do we create housing for that missing middle, the people who are between let's say 80 and 100% of AMI up to 120% AMI, that missing that missing middle. So has there been any progress on, on creating more affordable housing here in the city of Portland? So kind of focusing first back into your previous question, um, the there has to be to create new housing. You have to have the money. Developers have to have money to do that. And so there aren't necessarily programs or financing mechanisms that um, make creating housing that's affordable at certain income levels possible. And so that's one of the things that we have some money that we can influence the kind of housing that we want to create, but we don't, certainly don't have the resources to create um, and f fill the demand that's out there. And so there has to be other uh, partners, other uh, people in the marketplace that help, whether that be um, lending institutions, state resources, there, there has to be uh, Everybody has to come to the table um, in order for that to work. Um, and what I like to to bring up when I discuss this topic is that, you know, New England is, is different from the rest of the country in terms of, 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 you know, local control. You know, we're in a way to our detriment, you know, a little too obsessed with local control. But what other places, you know, they have stronger county governments. Um, or maybe even the state government makes some big decisions. Um, so how in the New England complex uh, con context, sorry, um, how, how does that affect things? 
the local municipality can only create resources in a finite number of ways. So there's property taxes, um, there's bonds, um, but there's a limit on what a local municipality can do simply because, um, you know, there's, there's so many, uh, there's so many other priorities that the community has. Um, they're all interconnected, but there's a limited amount of resources that a local municipality can use in on any one topic or item. Um, so if we were to look at the 2019 housing report and, and the resources available to us, like the federal resources you talked about earlier, uh, where would you point us to in terms of where we've made some progress specifically? So obviously, um, we use our federal resources to create to help developers create housing. Um, those resources are typically uh, a part of the financial uh, puzzle to create um, housing that's affordable at lower income levels. Um, we're partnering with other agencies like Maine State Housing Authority that's using their resources. Um, we're uh, partnering with programs like the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program. Um, so, um, you know, those are the pieces that are there that we're utilizing. Um, other trends, um, I think the city is doing a really good job at um, looking at their uh, zoning policies and regulatory issues. Um, but, you know, those are things that we constantly have to keep looking at and reviewing. Um, the trends, um, I think we've already talked about, we have um, a missing middle and we have to figure out how can we um, address the issues, housing issues regarding that missing middle. Um, you know, we have some other community concerns about where housing development is happening. Um, our comprehensive plan looked at, let's um, go through some of those transportation corridors and see what we can do from there. Um, so those are the, the kinds of things that we're looking at right now. So uh, nerding out a little bit. But uh, the comp plan, you know, like you said, mentions traffic corridors, but um, not only that, but also traffic nodes or the the places like, uh, you know, Woodford's Corner along Forest Ave and Rosemont along Brighton Ave, correct? Yep. Off those transportation corridors, yeah. those kind of nodes that come off from there. So now um, we're going back into history a little bit. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about, uh, you know, a lot of people say that our best source of housing is our current housing stock. And I was looking at 1950s Portland, where the population was 78,000. Um, but now the population is around 68,000 or somewhat, where some somewhere thereabouts. Um, do we lose housing units over the years? What happened? Um, so it, that's a really good question. And I did a little bit of research on that, um, looking um, I I quickly looked back, and I think since the 1970s, um, our housing units have gone up. Um, I can't uh, tell you uh, earlier than that where our numbers are, um, but since the 1970s, we have created, I think, probably around um, 
between five and 10,000 more new units. Um, so if you're looking at population um, and the change in the population, um, that's sort of a whole other topic that we won't get into, but where did those people live? Um, I think some of it is about the difference in how families um, live and interact together. Um, but I'm not sure that's necessarily about the number of housing units that are available being that dramatically different. Um, obviously, there was urban renewal in the 70s and 80s that did change some of the way the city looks. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that it impacted um, in a huge, huge way the number of units that were available. And urban renewal in, in terms of Portland history, we can see evidence of that um, if we look at 295, if we look at Franklin Ave and Franklin Arterial and uh, Spring Street uh, over by the Holiday Inn. Yeah, yeah. So that uh, change that Franklin Arterial, Franklin Street um, and the neighborhoods that were around there were greatly impacted by the creation of that arterial through the city, sort of, you know, designed around uh, creating easier transportation between one part of the city and the other. Um, but it did impact neighborhoods around there um, and how uh, streets intersected across that area. So um, it did change the 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 outlook of what the city was. Um, but that was the the trend at the time. So wasn't there a plan at one point um, to collapse Franklin Street um, to make room for more housing and, and whatnot? What happened to, to that plan? Um, I think, so the plan didn't disappear and the concepts are all still something that the city looks at. Um, but I think the reality of the cost of doing that um, greatly impacted how um, how realistic or how quickly something like that could happen. So um, it all comes down to money and what you have the resources to do and the competing priorities within the community. Yeah, so you've mentioned that a few times that you know the city is um, has limited resources in terms of where it can draw revenue from. Um, and so uh, that, that leads us to the next question where, you know, the University of Southern Maine, which I'm a proud graduate of, uh, is planning on building around 370-something units um, of student housing, which will house somewhere over 500 students, um, upper-level students, and so what conversations have the city, has the city of Portland had with institutions like USM? Yeah, I think we've been having those conversations in a variety of different ways. Um, so obviously, um, if USM, for instance, were able to house all of their students on their campus, um, that would alleviate some of the issues in the um you know, in the city's rental housing market. Um, but we've also talked um, with USM and UNE about um, home sharing. Like, how can we create a link um, where some of our 
uh, seniors who are living in homes that um, maybe are too big and they have room or they need a little bit of assistance with home maintenance, like mowing the, the lawn or shoveling snow. Um, is there a way that we can connect students with those senior homeowners um, and uh, make a, a affordable housing connection for them? So we've had conversations on a variety of different levels um, create for them about creating new housing on their campuses um, but also, you know, are there other solutions that we can look at for finding housing for the students that maybe help the people who are living in the community? So that reminds me of uh, ADUs, accessory dwelling units, or, or granny pods, as some call them, which are growing in popularity uh, throughout the country, uh, especially in places like Portland, Oregon, which I think had a pretty big ordinance change. I know the city of Portland made made some changes a few years ago. Have we seen any sort of uptick or, or increase in, in accessory dwelling units? We have seen some. Um, we made some changes to the regulations um, about how, when an ADU would be allowed, and um, we tied that to creating uh, affordable housing. Uh, so those units would be created and they'd be affordable to people at certain income levels. Um, but it's also um, being discussed as part of the city's recode process that they're undergoing. Um, so there, there's a possibility that um, there may be some additional changes as well. Now, do you, do you know how long the recode process will take or, or is that or, or, or is that just something that will will need its time? Yeah, it needs its time to work through the process. Um, I believe that the, if you talk to the planners upstairs, that they would um, uh, talk about still being involved in sort of phase one. Um, and um, so there's multiple phases, um, but there is a uh, page available. I believe it's um, Recode Portland. Um, on the city's website that talks about what that process is and how long it would, how long it will take. Now that, now that reminds me of our conversation about, you know, when we talked about the 1950s, you know, our, our zoning code was uh, created for 1950s needs and 1950s demands. And, and so would you say that changes over the years since have pretty much just created a patchwork um, and, and that's why we need a, a whole revamp and a recode. I would I would agree with that. It has been sort of patchwork fixes, and that's part of what this recode process is going to address. Um, first, the form, you know, of of the uh, code itself, the written form, um, but then also, um, you know, some of the policies that may have been appropriate in decades before, but aren't quite appropriate for now and making adjustments to that. So one of the things that our zoning code can't currently fully account for, I guess, um, because the 1950s, they didn't expect uh, Airbnbs and home sharing. So um, could you talk to us more about how the city council and, and the city government is trying to sort of balance the needs of you know, people who legitimately legitimately need Airbnbs to help afford their homes um, and, and a balance between, you know, the need for 
affordable housing and, and affordable apartments? Um, as part of that 2016 community process that I mentioned, the housing committee went through, um, we did uh, in 16 and into 17, we continued that out, public outreach and discussion um, around the topic of the sharing economy and Airbnb and all those other companies that do that same kind of thing. Um, and we spent many meetings of the housing committee listening um, to people who have been negatively impacted in their neighborhoods, um, as well as uh, property owners who talked about um, you know, the income generated from uh, having an uh, Airbnb or renting out a room um, helps them be able to stay in their homes. Um, and so um, the council and the housing committee were really looking at trying to um, establish a, a balance between that. Um, and, um, you know, they made um, their original uh, ordinance um, and then um, quickly, I think less than a year or just over a year, um, took a look at it again and made some additional changes. So um, the number 400 we really looked at, um, you know, trying to stay within 1% of the housing units in the city. Um, How many uh, units total are there? I think there are somewhere between 33 and 34,000 housing units in the city. Including and so, single family homes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're all um, counted together. Okay. Um, and so trying to um, keep within the 1% range of... Um, uh, of housing units. And so the, that 400 number really came from that. Um, but, you know, I think if you look at how did the council vote, there were some that um, really uh, didn't support having non-owner occupied um, Airbnbs or um, home sharing uh, processes. Uh, but there were some who wanted to, who, who acknowledged that it was a um, significant part of the city's economy and how can we do that and balance those questions about keeping units available for the long-term rental market um, and, you know, making sure neighborhoods weren't negatively impacted. So I think that's a good note to end on. Now, um, Mary, what are the top three favorite, uh, before I let you go, what are the top three favorite tools you have uh, at your disposal to to sort of uh, you know help in, in housing and community development? Um, so I, I think uh, the city's lucky to be um, what the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development calls an entitlement jurisdiction. So those federal funds, the CDBG program, the HOME program, um, the ESG program, those are grants that um, we receive on an annual basis based on the demographics of our community. Um, we don't have to write a grant application every year and wait to find out if we've received it. We, we receive that money every year. Those are such important resources for the city because particularly with CDBG, aside from housing, um, we do so many other things with that 
money um, from investing in public infrastructure, infrastructure, streets and sidewalks um, to uh, helping social service agencies who are providing services to the most vulnerable in our community. Um, so those are valuable resources. And I would say, um, you know, those are important for the city um, and uh, one of our biggest tools. Um, Outside of that, um, I think being creative in our uh, regulatory process and our zoning requirements um, and constantly looking at what can we do um, to remove the barriers to creating the type of um, housing that we need. Um, And then, um, you know, just our... um, other local resources that we have, whether that be the housing trust fund um, or city-owned property. Sorry to end it there, but uh, but some idiot forgot to bring his charger for his laptop uh, to the interview. But basically, to wrap it up, uh, we ended on the note of uh, city-owned land uh, that not all of it is suitable for housing development. Um, so that's it for the fourth episode of the Muse. Again, I am your host, Marfine Chan. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Marfine, on Twitter at Marfine Chan, and find me on Facebook. See you next time. <laughs>